All right, so good evening. We're ready to continue our series in Romans. So if you turn to Romans chapter 1, we've been finishing up this introductory section uh, in Romans where Paul is introducing his gospel. What, What he wants the Roman church, the people, to understand about what it is that he teaches. Again, the Roman church was not started by Paul or even one of the other apostles. It began um, out of the, the growth of the people that came back from the day of Pentecost. And many from Rome had come to Pentecost. Um, Peter preached. They heard this gospel. They went back and began uh, proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah, probably drawing a number of people out of the synagogues. Also, obviously, over the years since that time, which has been about uh, 20 years that, um, that the church in Rome has been developing since Pentecost, this is uh, others have visited, other ministers from the other parts of the Roman Empire, Uh, having heard the gospel message, the Christian message, some of them being students even of Paul, many that he recognizes within that church, Uh, Romans chapter 16, they're gathered there. So Paul has wanted to come to Rome, as we were saying in our last uh, number of lessons. He's been wanting this as he believes this is what God has put in his heart, but he also knows that uh, he has to wait for God's timing. And so He knew he had to do some other things first, but now uh, he is writing to them to tell them these things before he makes his journey to Jerusalem from where he gets imprisoned, then through transfer to Rome by ship. Finally, about seven years after Paul wrote this letter, he finally reaches Rome. So what Paul wants them to understand is the gospel. What, what is this gospel? Well, the gospel is God reaching mankind. He's been doing it since the beginning. And so Paul has established that this message of the gospel is nothing new. It's what God has established through the Old Testament. Again, remembering, they don't have a Bible. There is no New Testament at this point. So Paul, Paul's preaching, all the other men who have preached there in Rome... Um, Their gospel, their message has to come out of the Old Testament, plus revelation that's coming from the Holy Spirit as the Spirit is revealing things to these New Testament apostles and teachers. So as it's come down to the end of this, I want us to go back to verse 16, Romans chapter 1, verse 16. um, And he says, "'For I am not ashamed of the gospel.'" It is the power of God. The word ashamed, I'm not going to turn away from it. I'm not going to turn back. Even though there have been people who don't agree with it, don't approve it, don't accept it, uh, have even persecuted us and persecuted you, uh, we're not turning away from this. Why? Because it is, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's not just that in the gospel, it is the gospel itself. We proclaim the gospel and it produces salvation in the lives of the people who hear it and believe it. And he adds that to it, for everyone who believes. And so this this gospel is not just for everyone, God proclaiming everyone saved. No, it's for everyone who believes. Jew first and also the Gentiles. Paul and the other apostles fully expected the Jewish people to accept this gospel message. Some did. But some became incredible persecutors of the church, not, a, not themselves just persecuting, but trying to raise up the, the, um, the governments of other cities and nations against the gospel and using them, and as the Jews used the Roman government, to sometimes persecute the Christians. And so this was, this was a, a real trial for the apostles, and it was an important thing that they were developing uh, this message as they were going. I need to make sure that that's on. I'm sorry. I had to check my, check my thing. It was on. Okay. Um, so Paul says this is the gospel. Why? Because in it, the righteousness of God is created, revealed, disclosed. 
made known. So what Paul wants to say is, is that God's righteous action is revealed in this gospel. Now, commonly the way people think when they read this is they're talking about one of God's attributes. The God is all-loving, he's all-knowing, he's all-powerful, he's always present, um, and God is all-righteous, yes. But again, when we talked about righteousness in our last couple lessons, righteousness is what God has done to change you, what God has done to judge you as being um, as being against him, as being unholy, as God has judged mankind as being in sin, but has done his work to make man, to bring man back into a right standing with him. So righteousness is an action. It comes from the word which means to judge. And so God looks at mankind, says, you are in sin, but here's what I'm going to do to bring you back into a relationship with me. So the righteousness or the righteous activity of God is revealed in the gospel. And so when we read, as Paul makes reference to, teaching from the Old Testament, the prophets, the Psalms, the law, all of them proclaim God doing something to bring mankind back from sin and death into a right relationship with him, but it's for those who believe. God didn't just wipe away every man's sin from the planet Earth and say, hey, you're all in. No, that is not the gospel. The gospel is for those who believed. And again, they expected the Jews to accept. Some did. But then what they found is the Gentiles were very much open to this message. And so even by Paul's uh, 20 plus years down the road from Pentecost, there are more Gentile believers than there are Jewish believers. And the Gentiles flocked to this message. And we'll see more about that as we continue to develop the book of Romans. Why this gospel ministered to the Roman, to the Roman culture, to a pagan uh, environment, to a whole philosophy that was necessarily opposed to anything that was good. Rome is one of the most immoral places that you could imagine, more than you want to even try to imagine. But yet this gospel appealed to them so that within two centuries after Paul writes this, over half of the Roman Empire is Christian. This was accepted by the people they considered barbarians and enemies and aliens and, and all these people that the Romans in their cultural um, caste system felt were below um, humanity, slaves, Roman army uh, legionnaires came to this gospel. People coming out of pagan temples came to this gospel. Why? Because it did something in them. They believed it. The gospel began changing them. And so this becomes a powerful tool. And so then Paul goes on, the righteousness of God is revealed. This is God's righteous action. Righteousness is not something we have done. It's something God does in us when we believe. And so this righteousness is established. From faith, the beginning of faith, the very elements of faith, believing the gospel message, to unto faith, uh, which is our ability to live to the glory of God. So not only does God change us, but he gives us an ability to live for his glory, and that is all part of this faith. Why? Because as it's stated, the righteous will live by faith. The righteous are alive by faith. The righteous have been made alive by faith. The righteous are the ones who have believed and therefore their faith has saved them. And so there's many different ways that this can be 
applied, and Paul applies it uh, three different ways in his writing, here in Romans, in Galatians, and in Hebrews. So, what we want to look at in this lesson tonight, uh, I call this lesson, Where Do We Stand? And this is part one. Uh, where do we stand in, in this relationship with God's righteousness? With the righteous activity of God, where do you stand with that? Where does the world stand with that? What have you allowed, if I could use that term, allowed God to do in you? What do you accept from God? And so what Paul is going to do is from chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 4, verse 25, Paul is going to identify four different I don't, I, I, I don't want to use the word categories, but methods, if I could use that. Methods of mankind approaching the right standing with God. God wants man to be in a right relationship with him. How has the world approached that? And so he breaks it into four categories. That doesn't mean there's only four. It's just that this is the way Paul breaks it down. And so I'm going to list these, and they are, we'll list, look at two of them in this lesson and two more in the next session. And these four ways um, I've identified as hedonism. I'll come back to these titles in a minute. Hedonism, moralism, legalism, and one of my own creation I call gracism. And so uh, we're going to look at hedonism and moralism in this session, and then the other two, legalism and gracism, in our next lesson. So this path to right standing, why should men even care? Well, let's look at an opening verse. Um, look at verse 18. Just going to read uh, just a few verses here. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Well, that's, that's not a happy message. So all we're talking about is God's anger. All we're talking about is God judging people and His wrath poured out from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Notice the next phrase. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Well, to suppress the truth means you know it, but you don't want it. And so how have man mankind related to this truth that's been revealed of God bringing man into a right relationship with him? How has humanity related to this? They have suppressed the truth in several ways. In verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them. And this begins the first of our section, which we'll call hedonism. All right? So, in, in these categories that follow all the way through chapter 4, Paul is going to identify, what are you going to do? God has revealed that he wants man in a right relationship with him. What are you going to do about it? How are you going to respond? And this begins all the way back at the fall. And so we go all the way back to the fall of mankind. When Adam and Eve took of the fruit of the tree of good and evil instead of the tree of life. And in doing so, they brought forth a change in mankind that continued all the way down through the history of man. Because when Adam and Eve fell, all humanity was consigned to sin. And it's, it's just like, you know, if, if your grandfather died, he wouldn't be here. Well, if he died before you. Okay, let me say your great-great-great-grandfather. Okay, so go all the way back in history, several hundred years. If that relative of yours died, he wouldn't be here. Why? Because you were in him. And so in Adam... All have died. And Paul presents that. But here's the catch. This is nothing new. 
This is nothing new. This is nothing secret to mankind. Because mankind has responded to these things in his own way. And the own way is that God has, the man has come up with his own ways to bring himself back into a relationship with God. The first of these three ways, hedonism, moralism, and legalism. Man's way to bring himself back into relationship. But God had his own way, which I call gracism. All right? So, God has revealed himself. God's desire for mankind to want a relationship with him was not a secret. This has been in man, as I said, since the fall. Adam and Eve wanted something, but they changed from what God wanted them to have to what they wanted for themselves. And in doing that, then they issued in an entire um, history of fallen man. And fallen man began to come up with his own ways to come back into a relationship with God. And God has revealed himself since the beginning. God's eternal witness. Again, look at that verse 19. That man has suppressed the truth. And then verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain. I'm just going to stop right there. Is plain. Because God has shown it. God has revealed himself since the beginning. Let's look at some passages, and I'm going to go through these. This is, they're in your handouts here. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time in each one of these sections. I just want to echo the fact that the Scriptures tell us that God has done him what he could to reveal himself. Psalm 19 and verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. The heavens, the stars... There's uh, numbers of people who've written books about the witness of the stars. The greatest is a man named Bullinger. Um, his book is very, very deep. <laughs> uh, Marilyn Hickey also came out with a book called The Witness of the Stars, or a title, something like that. But that the constellations that are, in a sense, <laughs> from old, from the beginning of creation, the constellations do not reveal your future. They reveal the righteousness of God. And that if you could see the constellations, and God recognizes the constellations. The book of Job speaks of them in the Psalms that are mentioned. Uh, Orion, Pleiades, uh, these different, different constellations. There, they say something. That ancient man could look at the sky. Now, if you live in you know our culture today you can't see half the stars that you need to see as i have shared when i was on the amazon river uh i woke up early in the morning and and this glow outside and i thought who's got the lights on we're in a boat in the middle of the amazon river um and there's all this bright light and i thought what is this like floodlight so you got the street lights and i went outside it was the stars you can actually see shadows cast by the light of the stars. It was incredible. I saw things I'd never seen before. That's called dark sky, and you have to travel around the nation some places to find a dark sky area. You can go outside of Tulsa if you live here or maybe outside of your city and see it, but you need to go to a really dark place like Death Valley or someplace that's really far away from any kind of light pollution to see. And I could see stars. I could see different colors. I could see stars pulsating. I saw constellations that I had never seen before. I saw the Milky Way. I'd never seen the Milky Way. I've seen pictures of it, but I saw it with my eyes. See, God put all of that up there, not so we could write astrology books about, you know, what my future is going to be because I was born in such and such a month or whatever. No, it's up there to declare God's glory. And I'm not here to go into that 
series, but it's a fascinating, fascinating study. And the thing is, the constellations have been seen by man where? All over the earth. In fact, there's a constellation you can't see until you get into the southern hemisphere, which is something I saw when I was on the Amazon, called the Southern Cross. You have to be below the equator to see the Southern Cross. Fascinating. Why can't I see it here? Well, it's over the curvature of the earth. But you know what? It was always there. It's always been there. So God has revealed himself. Jeremiah chapter 5. Jeremiah 5, verse 21. It says, Declare this in the house of Jacob. Proclaim it in Judah. Hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. Do you not fear me? declares the Lord. Do you not tremble before me? In other words, God's talking about his greatness, his awesomeness. Not a, not a shriveling in fear, but a, God is so great. I place the sand as the boundary for the sea, a perpetual bearer. It cannot pass. Though the waves toss, they can't prevail. Though they roar, they can't pass over it. God there declaring, the seas will never take over the earth. Verse 23, but this people, this people has a stubborn, rebellious heart. They have turned aside and gone away. They do not say in their hearts, let us fear the Lord. In other words, the man should be able to look at creation and say, God is so great. Man didn't do this. God created this incredible earth, and he created weather patterns and geology and all those things, you know, that have made this earth what it is. God is just incredible. God did that. We ought to say, <laughs> we need to fear God. Who gives rain in its season, the autumn and the spring rain, and keeps for us the weeks appointed for the harvest? You can't change the seasons as much as you want to. I, I, I love the fall, and I'd love a, an autumn that lasted for six months, you know, with tree colors and all those things and the golden sunlight because of the... It, I can't have that. I can't have that all the seasons of the year. I love the spring when the dogwoods and the redbud trees begin blooming in the, in the forest. They're the only bright spot in all this dead forest. And these beautiful little trees just planted out there. It's, I just say, God, you're so great. But not everybody sees that. We ought to be able to look at those things and say, God created this. As much sometimes as I don't like winter. <laughs> Yet, there are some credible winter sights that you can see. Romans 2. Romans 2, again. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law, Gentiles do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires... They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. So Gentiles who do not murder don't do it because they had the law. The law said, thou shalt not commit murder. But Gentiles all over the earth don't do that. In Paul's day, before people knew the, the message of the New Testament or they were introduced to the message of the Old Testament, all over the world people didn't murder, and if you did murder, you were held accountable for that. They're doing the law, but they don't even know the law, meaning the Ten Commandments. So it says, goes on, verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written in their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So the word conscience this, this law is written in their hearts, and their conscience bears witness. The Greek word for conscience, sunodesis, uh, it, it's a Greek word which means to know oneself, to know oneself. Um, we would call it an inner witness or an inner judge. And so that's the way we think of conscience. It's like, I know this is wrong. I may do it anyway, but I know it's wrong. And so this is, this is in them. 
And so what do they do? Their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So they say, wow, this is wrong, I need to change. Or they say, this is wrong, but I don't care. I don't care. Uh, I'll do it for me. I don't want you to do that to me, but I don't care if I do it to you. Excuse. Acts 14. Men, Paul's preaching. Men, why are you doing these things? They were trying to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. We're, we're also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. Paul here proclaiming that these people know this, but they ought to bring sacrifices to him and not to mankind. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own way. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. Even though God allowed mankind to live his own way, he wasn't without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Just because man was in rebellion, God did not stop doing good things. Jesus makes the statement that God has called the, the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. And we think, well, that's, you know, God's judgment falls on. No, that rain is a blessing. And the way Jesus is using that in that phrase is that God causes his rain to fall. Even if you're the most wicked, evil sinner in the world, rain still falls on the just and the unjust. Again, a witness to God. Go to the top of your next page. Acts 17. Acts 17 says, God made the world and everything in it. Now, Paul just throws that statement out. Acts chapter 17, he's preaching to the philosophers on what we call Mars Hill. And he said, God made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breadth and everything. And he made the one man he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. God did all of this. Now, ultimately, these philosophers called the Areagathites, they're going to they're reject Paul, but not because of that statement. It's because Paul brings up the resurrection of Jesus. That's why they reject him. They, they had no disagreement. They didn't raise a voice about this. They didn't interrupt Paul and say, we, we don't believe in that, you silly man. No, it was only till he got to the resurrection of Jesus that they wrote Paul off. So for all of this, they're on board. They know that there's a God that's greater. Yeah, they've made these temples and they do these things, and, but they know they built the temple because they... they build it with their money and their work and their labor. And so they know that they made the God. They carved a God. They took a piece of wood. They took a piece of metal. They cast it or took a stone and chiseled it. They know that they made these gods. And then they fall down and worship them. Isaiah goes into a whole section on that. But you know what? But God has given man these times. Look at verse 27. God has allowed mankind this period of time that they should seek him. The reason God has held off his judgment of everything that is wrong is so that man can seek him. And that's a witness to himself. And perhaps feel their way toward him. I'll come back to that word in a minute. Perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he's actually not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our beings, Paul says. Now this word feel toward him is a Greek word which means to search in the dark for what has been lost. To search in the dark for something that you've lost or to know for certain what is obscure. What you, you believe for something, but it's kind of obscure. You can't really see it, so you search for it. It's like... These two different things. One is, is searching in a dark room. 
Uh, you ever walked in a room and you know there's a light switch on the wall somewhere, but you don't know where it is, and then you find out it's on the opposite wall from the door where he came in? You know, who, else, who designed that? We don't know. But, or there's a, there's a light bulb in the middle of the room that's got a string, and you walk in this dark room and you're feeling around. That's the picture of the first interpretation of this word, to search in the dark for what's been lost, or to know for certain. This, is, this would be more like looking through fog. And you know it's out there, and you're looking for it, but you can't quite see it. You know, like a ship sailing through the fog, uh, you better know where the rocks are. You better know where the dangerous places are. So what does God, mankind does, what, what does mankind do? To keep ships in the fog from hitting the rocks, they do what? They put up a lighthouse. They put a lighthouse there to warn you. God has done the same thing. He's done everything he could to direct you to the right place. Helen Keller was asked one time about how, you know, it felt to be blind and and to find God. She said, the same as you. I just have to feel in the dark until he made himself known to me. It's so, it, it wasn't a mystery to her. Now, these are the ways that God has revealed. Paul has mentioned these. Two more verses. Jeremiah 23. What I'm establishing here is God's eternal revelation of himself. Jeremiah 23, verse 23. Am I a God at hand? Just, am I just a God that's close? Declares the Lord and not a God far away. In other words, do you only know God when you're really close to him? Or is not the God who's far away revealing himself to draw you? Verse 24, can a man hide himself in secret places so that I can't see him? Do not I fill the heaven and the earth, declares the Lord. I have done everything. God says, I have done everything to lead you to me. And then finally, Ecclesiastes 3. Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 through uh, 9, I believe it is, uh, the great song. There is a time for everything under heaven, time to be born, a time to die, da-da-da-da-da, a time, a time, a time. Over and over, God talks about a time. That's man's time. Man's time, there's a time for this, there's a time for that, but none of those times endure. There's a time for this, a time for that. Time for peace, time for war. Time to kill, a time to build up. Um, All these things. But they're just, there's just a time. There's a time for daylight, there's a time for nighttime. Verse 11, Ecclesiastes 3 goes on, he says, But God has made everything beautiful in its time. God has a perfection that he wants to bring about. Also, listen to what it says. He has put eternity in a man's heart. As opposed to time. And and the writer here doesn't put the word time in. He puts the word for eternity. A time that is immeasured. And immeasurable. Every other thing has a measured time. You can't fight all the time. You can't love people all the time. Sometimes people won't let you. You can't be awake all the time. You can't be asleep all the time. There's a time for everything, a measured time, a season, appointed time. And God brings his perfection in that period of time. But God has also placed something else, eternity, a cry for something that never ends. A time for, for something that is real and certain. God has put eternity in man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Yet even with that, man doesn't find it. Why? Because only God can reveal it. And so God put this cry for eternity, is what I call it. A longing for eternity. A desire for eternity. God put that in the heart of man. There's a great book by a man named Richard Lawrence called Eternity in Their Hearts. And he, he did a study, an anthropological 
say that right, a study of, of different cultures of mankind around the world. And in his, in his book, he reveals how as missionaries came to these various secretive, secluded tribes, he found that, yeah, they had their pagan gods, they had their idols, but yet down inwardly there was something else that was saying, but there's something more than these created gods. There is, as the Greeks had it when Paul went to Athens, there's an unknown God. And that's the God that Paul wants to speak of. That's the God who wants to reveal himself to man. And God put that searching for eternity in the hearts of man. I put down here several bullet points in your notes. Eternity is right in this context because as opposed to the measured times of everything else in this Ecclesiastes chapter 2, there's this eternity which is immeasured, can't be measured. It never had a beginning, it never has an ending. The desire. And so God throughout Scripture has referred to eternity. Genesis chapter 3, verse 22, eternal life is lost. God has established, Genesis 9.16, an eternal covenant. In Psalm 90, verse 2, it talks about an eternal God. In, in Exodus chapter 40, verse 15, it talks about an eternal priesthood. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 13, it talks about an eternal kingdom. In Psalm 111, verse 5, it talks about God being eternally merciful. Wow, that's, that goes beyond my, life, my lifetime. If God is eternally merciful, certainly in my little period of time, I can find the mercy of God. And Isaiah 35, verse 10, talks about God giving man eternal joy. All of these, God uses this word eternal, which means it's not measured by time. It's not a little period of time. It's not some beginning and ending. No, it's unending eternity and God put that eternal craving if I can use that phrase eternal craving in our hearts God has given us listen to this God has given us a capacity for eternal things I, I can't understand eternity it blows my mind this brain lock you know it just I we, we are concerned about the future. We want to understand the beginning from the end. We, we have a sense of something which transcends our temporal existence. What's that called? Eternity. So what are these paths that God has raised up? Paths to right standing with God. So God revealed himself. So what's man going to do about it? Well, the first path we want to talk about, this thing that draws us to God, is called hedonism. Now, when God put this eternity in the heart of man, Adam, Eve were created perfect. They had a capacity for the eternal. God put a tree of life in front of them, eternal life. Or knowledge of good and evil. They chose the knowledge of good and evil. God removed the tree of life from their midst so that man was locked into this, but he didn't remove the eternal longing. It's just that that eternal longing was empty. That's what we call spiritual death. Spiritual death doesn't mean you don't exist. Spiritual death means it's empty, it's void. There's nothing there, no connection. Man had lost his connection with God. But then God immediately began to reveal himself. What did he do? He came and he slew an animal and took the skin and covered their nakedness. God saying, here's the way back to right standing with me. A substitute will pay with his blood so that you can be in right standing with me. Do you believe that? And from that time on, they obviously taught sacrifice because Cain and Abel came to bring their sacrifice. Where did they learn about sacrifice? From Adam and Eve. 
And so this idea of a substitute, I need something so that I can get back into right standing with God. It didn't take long for man to reject that way. So this first way that man has attempted to fill this void, this longing to be in right relationship with God, the first way I call hedonism. Now, the Greek word for hedon, uh, hedone, means pleasure, satisfying yourself with pleasure. This hedonism is, I, I put there in your notes, I don't want this relationship with God. I don't care about a relationship with God. I don't need a relationship with God. I'm joined my way. And that is what we call hedonism. I don't care. I don't care about what's right or wrong. I care about what makes me happy. And so it becomes an incredible selfishness, a total pursuit of selfishness. Hedonism is a word that we would use in our society even today. Um, but the Greek word hedone uh, had to do with a sensual pleasure or gratification or lustful desire. In other words, I am satisfied only as my emotions and my physical being is somehow being appeased. Um, my desires and the way the word is used by the Greek people it referred to um, a physical desire to fill one's life with pleasures in order to distract from what I need. I use the pleasure to keep me from thinking about what I need. And so a hedonist, even to the Greek society, was not a pretty word. It was somebody who had filled their life with all of the things, sexual perversion, Drugs, alcohol, any, any, any type of something that would occupy themselves to keep them from finding what it is they really need. It's not helping you. It's killing you. Now, this word is actually used in the New Testament a few places. James chapter 4, verse 1. James chapter 4, verse 1, Paul, or Jan says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions, hedone, are at war within you? You are wanting what you want, and I don't care if it hurts anybody else. And I'll fight you for it. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Yet you don't have, because you're not asking. You're not asking God. You're not pursuing the right way. You ask and don't receive because you're asking wrongly to spend it on your own passions. This can even come part of the Christian life where we are seeking our own way instead of what God has revealed. Top of your next page, Luke 8. This is the word that's found in the parable of the sower and the seeds. And it says, and some fell on the, what we call the thorny ground. As for what fell on the, among the thorns, there are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life. So God's word sown then is so distracted by our own pleasures that we don't really care, and therefore God's word does not produce in our life. Paul's letter to the Romans, he introduces these four different paths by this one, hedonism. And this way would be plain to anyone who lived in Roman culture. This was Roman culture. Roman culture was filled with hedonism. Absolute immorality beyond what people can imagine. Um, I've read different um, actors who have played parts, you know, for the Roman Empire uh, during this period of time. And, and as, as shocking as they find, <laughs> this is way beyond anything they consider acceptable. And they're not living God's lives to honor God. 
But this way, the Roman culture was so perverse, it was beyond their imagination. So let's not try to imagine it. But Paul states that this is the issue. Look at, uh, look at chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, verse 21. For although, I want you to notice the prepositions I've underlined in your notes here, and if you don't have the notes, just follow this. This is the English Standard Version. Romans 1.21 says, For they, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their own thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they implied they exchanged the glory of the immortal God. They knew he was. They knew God lived beyond mankind. He was not human. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They made their idols. Though they knew of God, they made idols. They did what? They made them so they could worship them. Look at verse 24. Therefore God gave them up. Notice that the God gave them up does not come at the beginning. And this is so wrong in the way sometimes people deal with the issue of, of eternal life, of the God gave them up, and then they became this. No, 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 no. No, there are things that are going to follow. Paul's going to talk about that. But the first thing is they, 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 they. They did these things. God didn't appoint them to this perverseness. God didn't appoint them to, quote, spiritual death. God didn't appoint them to hell. They chose. They suppressed the truth. They turned away. They did all these things. Then God gave them up. Now, we'll build more on that in our lessons to come as I go through this entire section, Romans 1, 18 through 32. So that's hedonism. I don't want God, I don't need God, I don't care about God. I just want to enjoy life and just leave me alone. Now, the second way, and it says method, that man has come up with to uh, establish himself in a place of what we call right standing with God is what I'll call moralism. And this is reflected in uh, chapter 2, Romans chapter 2. Um, all the way down through, um, I forgot to write the reference there, but uh, I put it someplace. That's all right, we'll find it. But in chapter 2, Paul then comes back with what is called, yeah, verse 16, that's right. So down through verse 16, chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. And so in this section, man establishes his own ways. So I, I know that there's, there's something I need to do that's good and right. And there's other things I, I don't want to do. I don't care about those. So I'm going to make my, my list. It's my list. And my list, guess what? I can live by it. So I establish a list that I can live by. Oh, it might take some sacrifice on my part, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this list and I'm going to live by it. That's moralism. That's me establishing my way. Now, it might not be exactly the same as yours. And, and you're wrong. <laughs> so my, my way is right because I'm a moralist. And therefore, what I'm doing is right. What you're doing doesn't quite match up. So... Moralism is, I do good things. Somehow I've revealed, God has revealed down through this eternal craving in my heart, through God's revealing himself. God has established such things that are right. Murder's wrong. We'll just go with that. Murder's wrong. Unless you're of another religion that I don't like, and then it's okay if I kill you. 
Or maybe you belong to a race that I don't care about. And so I'll oppress you. I wouldn't want you to do that to me, but I don't care if I do it to you. Moralism. I, I make up my own rules. I'm, I'm not a horribly bad person. Unless, like I said, you're of the wrong race or religion, nationality, whatever. What this is, is the sin of Cain. This is Cain's sin. And he becomes what we call the father of religion. As all religion established came down from Cain. Obviously, God had revealed to add to Cain and Abel through their parents that there was a substitute and that that substitute was about sacrifice and that we remember and, and believe in that through the sacrifice of animals. So when we read in the book of Hebrews that by faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain. Why was it better? Because it was a faith. He believed what God had said. Cain's sacrifice was not of faith, therefore it was not good. It was not acceptable. And not being acceptable is what made Cain angry. But you can't kill God. Well, unless you're Nietzsche. But you can't kill God, so... We'll kill the people that do worship him. I'll kill the, kill the people that make me feel guilty, that make, make what I'm doing feel wrong, because I don't want to feel wrong. I want to feel right. But God came to came, and I'm, I'm condensing a whole lot of Genesis chapter 4. God came to Cain and said, Cain, what you're doing is wrong. Change your way. If you do what's right, will you not be accepted? But I'm telling you, son, sin is at your door. And it's desiring to have you, but you got to conquer it. So even at that point, when Cain had offered the wrong sacrifice, God came to him, offered him a way. And Cain said, I don't want that way. And if he represents that way, then I'll kill him. I'll get rid of what makes me feel guilty and establish my own moral way to God. Religion. So that all the religions of mankind, philosophies of mankind, come out of this moralist thing. It's, it's not that we're not hedonists. <laughs> we're not doing that. You know, those people over there, I don't do that. And so the moralist points out what they are doing and also what the other people are not. So this whole idea is I've got to establish my way. But God's going to reveal this. One of the statements that's made that applies back to this whole thing is God has made his, his de demands. God has established what's right. And somehow man knows things that are right. Not, not every little detail, but we know things that are right. But man makes his own statements. But there's a, there's a statement made in um, Romans chapter 3, verse 9 through 18. And Paul goes down through a list of things that man does not do. And there is this, and you have this, and you have this, and you have this, and it's point after point after point after point. But here's the inline, verse 18. Inline. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So whether it's the hedonist, or whether now here it's the moralist, there's no fear of God before their eyes. What, what, what's the moralist? Doesn't he do some good stuff? I mean, isn't that enough? Shouldn't my good count? Yes. Even Paul will say your good should count for rewards. As a reward. If you don't live 
in drunkenness, you can preserve your life. If you don't commit certain crimes, you can stay alive. But if you do certain things, you won't. And so God has revealed good and bad, and that's, that's good, that the tree of life was opposed by the tree of knowledge of, notice the phrase, good and evil. Thank God it wasn't just the tree of evil. So that there was good, man could know to do good things to people. But the moralist says, I'm going to make my own list. And his fulfillment of this, there is no fear of God before their eyes. I made these points. There's no respect for God's full revelation of himself. What we call the logos. God isn't revealed in a little verse here and a little verse there. God is revealed in the Logos, which is why Jesus came with that title. He is the Logos, the full revelation of everything God desired. That's, that's what Jesus is. But even before that, there was the Logos. You couldn't just read one chapter of a prophet. You couldn't read one psalm and have it all. So God gave different men different ways of expressing. You have the law as written by Moses, but then enlarged upon throughout the prophets and even the Psalms, so that what was God wanted to say to man could be known. It could be known. But I'm just going to choose the parts that I like. See, there's no respect for the full revelation of God. This is where our culture is today. We are facing in churches, denominations, throughout Christianity, throughout our culture, things that we like and things that we don't. And if you are not in agreement with what I like, then you're wrong. And therefore, uh, one of the groups that is wrong is going to be people who believe the full revelation of God. Those who believe that the word of God is God's revelation. And those who have no fear of God in their eyes pick and choose. Like going to a supermarket. There, there's stuff I will not even put in my cart in the supermarket. Clam juice. I have no idea what the purpose of clam juice would be, but it's not in my cart. And as far as I'm concerned, will never be in my cart. Um, it's, there's things we pick and choose. Well, we do the same thing with the Word of God. Ah, we like this, but we don't like that. And so I am going to determine what's right and what's wrong. And so intellectualism, um, moralism, these things step in and say, well, this can't be wrong. How's the song go? If loving you is wrong, I don't want to be right. Right? If it makes me happy, you should accept it. There is no fear of God. There's no reverence for what God has established. There's no fear of God. And this doesn't just apply to the hedonist. We like to say they're, they're, the, they're the wicked. No, moralists fit here, and we're going to look at... The legalists fit there also. Next section. And they reject according to their, and it comes across this way, their superior wisdom. I expect you to like and, and, uh, and accept everything I say, but I will never accept what you say. You have to match my superior wisdom, but I'm never going to come down to yours. I'm never going to give up my, quote, superior wisdom. They preach that as tolerance. They use the phrase tolerance, but they're totally intolerant of you. If you want to hold fast to God's revealed way, that there's a reverence of God before my eyes. And I'm not going to 
adjust his word, discount his word, pick and choose. I'm not going to change his word. But then I become intolerant to you. And therefore, I'm the one who's wrong. And so this is um, the way a lot of our culture and unfortunately some of our church is going today. In the name of tolerance, you are intolerated. And so if you won't bend to this, there's a funny video. I love it. It's a Veggie Tales. And it's the Rab Shack and Benny Veggie Tales. If you've never watched it, you know, forgive me, but I like it. And the whole thing is about this chocolate bunny that they have to build. And everybody has to bow down to the bunny, the bunny, the bunny, the bunny. And so everybody has to bow to the bunny. And if you don't bow to the bunny, then you are removed. And the bunny was a god that they set up. Now, it goes back to the story of Daniel and Meshach, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the whole story and the statue that they had to build down to. So the whole thing is there. It's silly, but if you hear the song, the bunny, it'll stick in your head for a while. But it's the same principle. And so with the moralist, they present themselves as so right. Listen to the words of Romans chapter 2. Romans 2. Therefore you have no excuse. <laughs> oh man. Every one of you who judges moralists. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Why? Because you made the rules. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. You just do it with a different term. I'm intolerant, but really, you're the one who's intolerant. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Verse 3, do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? If you believe in things that the Bible presents as truth, you're a hater. And therefore, I hate you. It's, it's right there. Their self-righteousness discounts you. Verse 4, or do you presume on the riches and kindness and forbearance and patience of God, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So verse 3 is self-righteousness, promoting yourself, your point. Verse 4 is what we call hubris, H-U-B-R-I-S, comes from a Greek word. Hubris, but hubris is, is not just arrogance. It, it was in the Greek language, it was a different arrogance. It was the arrogance that looks down on all that differs and exalts your position as the only one acceptable. So an, a, a proud person, that's a different Greek word, a proud person is just in themselves. Hubris is when I have to destroy you. Because you threaten what I believe is the only way. And so this attitude of moralism is the root of so much of religion. And religion, not Christianity, not God's revealed truth, but religion, religions born of man, are the root for more wars and more destruction in the earth than any other policy. So therefore, this is a great thing. And yet, each one of these would present themselves as moral. I'm right. You're wrong. And you have to be removed. So this is their way 
of coming to right standing. So these, these two ways. In the next session, we'll talk about legalism and also gracism. And all of this applies to one thing. This is the gospel. This is Paul's gospel. And this is what Paul presented as the gospel of God. So, so lesson for today. Let me pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, I just thank you that you take the truth that we have received and bring it into our hearts. Father, help us to establish what is right, your way. And Father, help us to reject the thoughts and the ideas that come from these other ways. Father, we thank you that your righteousness has been revealed through the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.